This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another edition of the Great War Supporter Podcast. Jesse. Yes. You look a bit tired. Well, you know, there's a lot of that going around these days. Um, we've, got, uh, we've got a lot on our plates, so it's a lot of fun. But uh, we're running a tight ship these days. Yeah, because there's, you know, there's something we need to talk to you about which caused a bit of eyeshadowing, a bit of a lack of sleep, and maybe also made us a bit less responsive on social media for a few days in between. But it's very cool and it was totally worth it. Today, we're launching our crowdfunding campaign for a little thing called 16 Days in Berlin. What is 16 Days in Berlin, Jesse? It is the source of a lot of excitement for me because uh, it's going to be the ultimate documentary on the Battle of Berlin, which happened in April and the beginning of May 1945. And we're going to spend the winter creating it, and we're going to release it in the spring for the 75th anniversary, and it's going to be a giant can of awesomeness. Yeah. In a nutshell. Yeah, I totally, I signed this, and this is something that has been brewing in the background for a few months, maybe a bit over a year already now. And we're really excited to show it to you. And it's going to be uh, the best documentary about this topic, just because it's usually a battle that gets overlooked in most other World War II documentaries that we've watched. It seems that the producers usually run out of time in April 1945 and then it's usually something like, yeah, and then uh, the uh, German army collapsed and uh, Hitler shot himself and that was it. But, you know, if you look at the numbers and what happened on the ground there, it's like, it's a very important battle. It has a historic significance, even though it was, you know, at the end of... World War II, it still has significance, especially for the people that took part in it. And it also had a significance for my hometown, Berlin, which is, you know, why I got interested in it in the first place. I mean, it's not like the outcome was in doubt. It's not a turning point uh, like Stalingrad or maybe Kursk or these kinds of battles that usually get, uh, you know, most of the time in the typical documentaries or most of the press. But it has awakened some uh, interest amongst uh, historians, anyway, in the last year. So we've got some new scholarship, uh, some up-to-date stuff using, you know, the archives that have been opened up after the end of the Soviet Union and so on, um, that we can base ourselves on uh, to tell the story. Because it's true that the war was decided before the battle even began, but that doesn't mean that it's not super dramatic all sorts of crazy stuff going on, 
I would say in a way, even for World War II, abnormal stuff that wouldn't necessarily take place in the kind of uh, fighting up until that point. And it does have this sort of foreshadowing significance, right? The Soviets and the Allies are sort of jockeying and, and there's some debate about who's going to take it and if it's going to be... Um, what's going to happen to it after the war and then the it contributes not only to uh, you know the end of the Third Reich and so on and the end of the war but also to the post-war period and it contributes to the tensions uh, and the misunderstandings and the mutual kind of animosity between the Soviets and the primarily Americans but uh, the Western Allies generally so it's got a it's got like from every angle you can come at it if you if you're into the kind of technical stuff and, I don't know, urban warfare tactics and all the creative ways the Soviets came up with to try and attack the city and the creative ways the Germans came up with to try to defend the city with the resources they have, there's that, there's the civilian side of what happens to the people there, and then there's the kind of grand strategy side of what is in the minds of the leaders, you know, which Soviet generals get what orders from Stalin and why and what's the relationship between them and I hope I haven't gone too deep into the spoiler alerts but those are some of the themes that are kind of getting me excited about uh, the research and writing. So you said there are many angles uh, to cover this documentary. We will cover it day by day and with your support and granting that our campaign is a success we will cover hopefully every of these angles or at least as many of these angles as possible. That this is the objective. This, this will be a dissection of this battle. This will have different perspectives in it. We will have a look of course at the military leaders, at the so common soldiers on the ground, at the civilians, not just the German civilians by the way, Uh, the foreign civilians, the political prisoners, the people caught up in the Holocaust, the forced laborers, the foreign soldiers that fought for the Wehr for the Wehrmacht and the SS at this point. Um, also, not just you know, there's always this term used, Russian soldiers. We you know, of course, you know, there were like soldiers from all over the Soviet Union that take took part in the battle. And you know, if you want to talk about animosity, talk about you know the interesting relation between the Polish armies and the Polish marshal and the yeah, nearly 10% of uh, Soviet troops were from Poland, um, or I should say, uh, yeah, how can I how can I phrase that? Nearly 10% of, of the troops attacking the city were uh, Polish um, at the start of the offensive anyway. And there were also uh, women involved in, uh, in the Red Army, much more substantially than in the other armies. And they played a significant role in particular at the beginning. But I don't want to give, I don't want to give some of the quote-unquote surprises away. Yeah, so this is going to be very exciting. I'm sure you guys have a ton of questions about it. You know, just, um, you know, we put a contact email address uh, on the Indiegogo campaign page. Um, you can just go to realtimehistory.net slash Indiegogo to find the campaign page. Of course, we will make a, a post on our Patreon page as well. Um, you know, just generally, if you have questions, ask them and this is the most important thing. If you want to back this campaign, and we hope that you do, 
uh, we created some special discounted perks just for our Patreons. Um, and these will be only available for the first, you know, for limited time in the beginning. But um, you can find them and more explanations about the perks. We really think you're going to love them in the, on the post I make about this project on Patreon. Um, so, you know, where you will find this campaign page. I'm sure of it. You're a smart guy, smart girl. You listen to this podcast. And flattery. Yeah. That's an excellent marketing technique. I like yeah. it. Yeah, it's very subtle as well. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so I, 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 I mean, you know, we really hope that you that we will be able to produce what we just outlined, and I think we've proven with the Great War that we have the cap capabilities historically and from a production standpoint to do so. And speaking of the Great War, that's also still going on. We're not going to abandon the Great War channel, of course. In fact, we've produced some exciting episodes since we last spoke. Which one do you want to talk about first? Um, let's go with uh, Saint-Germain, because uh, living in Vienna, obviously, the sort of echoes of the treaty and the new map that it created in Central and Eastern Europe are kind of part of my daily bread, I guess. And I've met Lots of people who tell me stories about, well, their family's originally from some part of Central Europe that's not in, uh, that's not included in the Austrian Republic anymore. So it's really in the something. In Österreich. <laughs> exactly. In the, in the leftover sort of uh, rump state uh, that became the Republic of Austria. And so it's something that, uh, yeah, I was quite pleased to get the chance to kind of do a bit more reading about, even though... Some of it was included in my uh, in my final examination for my master's degree as well, but uh, I hadn't I hadn't really delved into it in a couple of years. So, as a German and you know from history class and as someone who's interested in history, I know of course about the Treaty of Versailles. Also, we covered it a few week, weeks ago. Um, does the Treaty of Saint Germain have the same standing as the Treaty of Versailles in Austria as it as the Treaty of Versailles has in Germany? It's funny because in a way it does, and in a way that's really faded. Certainly the name recognition is not there. Versailles, just the word, has a, such a kind of big connotation no matter what people think about it. Uh, I think that what happened with Austria is the situation changed so much after World War II that there are so few German-speaking populations now outside the borders of the Republic of Austria since they uh, left or were pushed out in 1945. And that generation is also quite old now, so or has passed away. So it's a little bit different. Um, you do have a lot of nostalgia for the monarchy times. I mean, they make a lot of money off of that with tourism and so on. but there isn't quite the same um, like legend of being done wrong because the continuity of the state is not the same as in Germany. So the kind of identity and, I don't know, maybe loyalty or feeling of belonging to one state that existed before and after, and maybe you think something bad happened to it then in 1919 as, as some of our YouTube commenters felt, for example, about the Treaty of Versailles, some Germans as well, 
in Austria, there was such a break between the nature of the state, a giant multi-ethnic imperial monarchy becomes a small, more homogeneous, but not entirely, republic. And so uh, even though the, the treaty can be considered to be harsher than Versailles in, in what it laid out, what the terms were, that, uh, that legend uh, is a bit different, I think, because of those structural changes. It's a very interesting uh, comparison, of course, uh, in that sense that you say the change was so radical or the cut, so to speak, was so radical that it had get, gets a different standing because, um, you know, th th this was already a debate in 1918, 1919. There is like the, um, for example, John J. Pershing, general of the American Expeditionary Force, uh, you know, heavily argued for invading Germany completely and like, marching into Berlin essentially to say that they, they need a total defeat. Yeah, um, 1945 style. 1945 style to, um, to learn their lesson. And even though this wasn't like a military super clear cut, th that could give some, like comparing these two events uh, and the German and Austrian Fate in 1919, I think, lends some credence to that. Uh, that, I th that just came to my mind, and it's the same. I mean, there's also the same comparison between Germany 1945 and Italy 1943, 1945. Yeah, that yeah. says okay, it, Italian remembrance and uh, no, also actually nowadays nost open nostalgia for uh, from Mussolini's regime uh, comes from the fact that they can hang themselves on the fact that they switched sides and uh, realized their mistake uh, early enough. You know, I, I haven't studied these kind of arguments in depth, but I think this is like where comparative historical approaches make a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, it's interesting to just play with the ideas. I mean, uh, even, even if we're not, you know, writing a PhD about it, obviously. Japan's also an interesting comparison in a sense, because of course they were defeated, but they were able to kind of retain you know, one of the defining institutions, the the uh, emperor and so on. And that probably had an impact as well on how they have ended up uh, viewing the war. But now we're digressing a little bit. Here. But funny that you say Japan, because actually, coincidence. Pure genius. Total coincidence. I, uh, I did an interview, an expert interview for this month's uh, podcast episode with uh, Robbie Park. Uh, she's a lecturer in the US. And she specifically studies um, the period of Japan from the late 19th century up until 1936. And I asked her a few questions about Versailles, Japan, 1919. And she touched on a few things we just talked about. So we're going to listen to the interview right now. Hello, everyone. This is Flo from the Great War Supporter Podcast um, here for our monthly expert interview and today we are traveling to a different part of the world uh, which a lot of you expressed interest in we're going to japan and to talk about japan in 1919 i have a guest on the line and she's going to say hi and introduce herself to you now Hi, yeah, my name is Robbie Park, and I'm an adjunct instructor of history at a local university here in Kansas City, Missouri. And I have a Master of Arts in History, and I uh, focused mostly on uh, pre-modern Japan 
up through about uh, 1936 or so. Cool. 1936, is there something important happening with Japan then? No, I, I, I just really kind of am less interested in World War II and my focus mm. is not on World War II, so around there is kind of where I'd stop. I mean, 1930 would probably be more like the traditional cutoff, but okay. for me it's like 36 or so. Okay, cool. So, um, before, uh, when I prepared this interview, I asked a few of our Patreon supporters if they have any questions or anything that they're particularly interested in. And I think some of these questions are an excellent, excellent um, starting point for our conversation. And the first question that we have is from British General French which I think is not the original General French anymore, but maybe it's one of his descendants or his, his spirit. But he asks, um, how much did Japan gain out of the Paris Peace Conference? I think that's a big question because we already mentioned in our Versailles episode that they were not so pleased with the outcome. So what happened there? Yeah, so this is a really good question um, because initially a lot of people tend to say that um, Japan Uh, was very irked by the Paris Peace Conference and mostly because of the rejection of the racial equality clause. And so that's something I'd probably start off by discussing first. Um, the rejection of the racial equality clause is kind of a, a unique situation because when Japan initially proposed it, um, it, it was really proposed as equality for any member of the League of Nations. It was not actually proposed for all people. And so this was a major gaffe and like misinterpretation um, of many of the countries at the, the peace conference um, because, of, of course, due to things like colonialism, a lot of countries that were more uh, predominantly white tended to view this racial equality clause as saying, so you want equality for all people, but Japan was not interested in equality for all people. It was interested in equality for all members of the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a gaffe that started off right from the beginning, also in terms of Japan sort of being unable to kind of read the room. Um, I mean, almost immediately, um, Australia and, well, definitely the United States, but also Britain, those three countries really, there, there was no way that they were going to accept the racial equality clause. And to set that up, because Wilson knew over in the United States that this was not going to be accepted, they set this as a unanimous vote knowing that it was not going to get a unanimous no. pass, um, of course. So um, the racial equality clause is something that people bring up a lot um, as one reason why Japan um, came away sort of in the negative column in the conference. I don't think that's actually the case because overall I would say that Japan was pretty successful after the peace conference. Um, for one thing, they acquired German Micronesia um, they also uh, acquired um, the Shandong province. Um, they, they were able to keep that. They were, Korea was also totally sidelined. Nobody talked about Korea having any of its own rights or belonging to its own people. Um, so Japan ended up with these colonies after the conference. Um, so despite the rejection of the clause, um, when uh, the bureaucratic members returned from the conference when they went back to Japan. They were greeted with parades. Uh, the Japanese were celebrating in the streets. They felt that uh, the Japanese were being treated equally um, overall, politically um, and diplomatically, other than the racial equality clause, and that Japan was being recognized for the first time as a superpower. 
So um, overall, I would say that the Paris Peace Conference was a major win for the Japanese, despite the fact that there is going to be that sort of little annoyance of the fact that the racial equality clause was rejected. Yeah, and I mean, uh, it wasn't that, uh, I mean, you know, as you just mentioned, they still got a bit of territorial expand out of that, which I think was quite uh, something that they were slowly gearing up towards uh, to expand territorial in that time. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. And I will say that um, the the Japanese government became more and more interested in Uh, how Japan was being treated as controlling the Pacific. Because one thing that a lot of people don't understand during this period of time is that the control of the, control of the Pacific was viewed as something that was sort of a European matter. And this is the first time now that, that European Western powers are acknowledging Japan and they're saying, you know, actually this is something where Japan should be a part of this conversation. We should have this, this naval superpower be a part of this conversation because Japan had helped so much in World War One and had lent so much of its naval power to the war. Um, this is the first time that Japan is being treated almost as an equal, and especially when it comes to Pacific territory. So now Japan can kind of look at the Pacific and say, well, what do we want out of this? Um, and that really hadn't happened before. And um, if I remember, we, we did a Japan during World War One episode, and if I remember correctly, they had this kind of concept where they considered uh, the immediate surroundings of the Japanese islands as kind of like uh, a cordon of protection, I think is what it's called. Basically, something that they want to have some kind of influence or control over to be able to protect the Japanese islands, right? Yeah, that's true. And also, I, I would say as well that the Japanese... Uh, who, I mean, they became heavily influenced by Western Europe and this sort of paternalistic attitude of we have a responsibility to take care of these people, um, regardless of what island they're on or what province they're in or wherever. Um, we as Japanese and as the foremost uh, superpower in the Pacific have a duty to look over them and take care of them. And th this is very, like, this, is, this is colonialism. I mean, 100%, this is like paternalistic colonialism. Um, and uh, they definitely had that attitude toward Korea during this period, um, and also even in China as well. Okay, that's quite interesting. Um, so the one other part close to Japan um, and people that occasionally follow geopolitical news nowadays will know that is that Japan is quite close to Russia um, if you look uh, a bit further to the right on the Eurocentric map so and Japan had a quite large contingent um, in Vladivostok uh, in term uh, in regards to the Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War And they stayed there for quite some time as well. So uh, could you explain a bit what, what was their role in the far east of Russia there and um, you know, how, how, they, how that fit, fit into the, the themes that we just discussed? Yes. So Japan has had an enormous amount of involvement with Russia. Now, I mean, there's, there's some very obvious, you know, of course, the Russo-Japanese War. Um, there's obvious events that happened before this, but if we're talking about Russian involvement, or I'm sorry, Japanese involvement in Russia uh, during this time period, the biggest incident probably was the Siberian intervention 
of course. Um, so what happened, just to kind of explain, and the Siberian intervention encompasses really from like 1918 to about 1922. Um, so what happened was um, the a number of Western powers and then also Japan and China um, really wanted to support the white Russians um, during the uh, Russian Civil War. Uh, and so the Japanese ultimately were asked to be part of an international coalition to send, I, I think it was about 7,000 soldiers, send them over there um, to Russia, to Vladivostok, um, which is quite close to Japan. And um, they would be part of this international coalition. Now, the strange thing is that the government actually decided that uh, they wanted to send closer to 12,000 troops and uh, they wanted them to be under Japanese control, not an international coalition, um, because the Japanese had a number of concerns uh, about the Russians and about them intruding and coming closer to them, um, particularly anything lower than the Amur River. Mm. Um, so the Amur River was sort of a major um, border for them or a cutoff point where, or I, should, I guess I could call it a line in the sand where the Japanese said, don't come any lower than this. Um, so they they had a lot of um, contention with Russia over uh, how far Russia was gonna come further south. So they sent these troops to Vladivostok and they wanted to support um, the white Russians. And then ultimately um, they ended up staying there, like I said, until about 1922. And they stayed there a bit longer, um, I believe than the Western powers. Yes, yes. Um, they, they had already uh, dropped out in the summer of 1919. So yeah, really yeah, right. Well, and something that I will say that inflamed all of this that did not help whatsoever was the, uh, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, so I apologize to the listeners, uh, the Nikolaevsk incident, uh, where all of these Japanese prisoner of wars were executed without trial uh, oh, wow. by the Russians. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal, um, because obviously it looked really, really bad. Um, and they were all, they were captured, I'm trying to think, I uh, believe in March of 1920 and then executed two, about two months later. Um, and uh, so then the Japanese ended up using this as sort of like an excuse for why they had occupied uh, Sakhalin Island, uh, especially northern uh, Sakhalin. Uh, so this, this incident was a kind of a big to-do for them. And I believe it was about 100, it was over 100 prisoners uh, of war were executed without trial. Um, so, yeah. Quite fascinating. This is something that I also had never heard of, um, which I probably pre I presume that we will cover in our show in the future. Uh, by the way, um, that question that we just uh, had about the Far Eastern Russia, that was a question by Jack Sharp, who also asked us on Patreon. And another question that we have from Patreon is uh, from Illuminati Rex. Um, he asks about something that you also already briefly touched on, which is Japan's wartime activities in the Mediterranean. And not specifically what kind of activities there were, but rather how they impacted uh, their relations with other nations in 1919. Yeah. So this, first of all, this is a great question, and it actually gave me pause for a second because I had to think about it. Um, so if we're just talking about uh, the reactions to Japan's um, involvement in World War One, like their naval involvement, um, I would say that's probably the greatest and most impactful uh, portion of, of like on their re their relationship with other countries was just how they were perceived by other countries. Um, so after 1918, 
Um, other countries acknowledged Japan's superior military force on the seas. Um, I don't think that there was anything in particular like other than I'm aware of the fact that there was a, a destroyer that they had called the Sakaki, which was uh, detonated and or torpedoed, I'm sorry, by an Austrian submarine. But I'm not aware of how that would have impacted their relations with Austria, since Austria obviously was not a victor in World War One. And was also, uh, also was landlocked uh, in 1919, didn't have any submarines anymore. So uh, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I don't think it really had any particular impact on their relations in terms of like the actual ships that they fought and like who owned those ships or whatever. Yeah. Um, but. I would say it was more of an impact in terms of how other countries perceived Japan and that it was a true naval power. And I mean, this is one of the reasons why, like, they're included in the Washington Naval Conference. Like, why is Japan in there when Japan really has never been, Japan has never had a seat at the table up until this point. And now all of a sudden, Japan is being recognized as a, a superpower in all of these different treaties. So the rise in conference diplomacy for Japan and sort of their recognition as a world power is a huge deal. And a lot of it happened because of their their abilities on the seas and, and their navy. Well, that's quite fascinating. Uh, because, I mean, if we look at other, let's say, um, lower tier powers, big, big quotation marks, um, that joined the war effort in some form with like labor corps or maritime support, navy support kind of thing, also, uh, the colonies that send um, soldiers, they all had this motif that it said, okay, this will get us a seat at the table um, in the post-war order, and the, which is going to be, you know, happening. And this seems to be a case where this actually worked, unlike, for example, with a lot of with a lot of the African colonies where it totally didn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's it's so interesting how Japan is able to kind of um, inflate their importance, but then um, the I mean, it's it's totally going to work, and their economy does really really well after the war, other than an initial dip uh, whenever there's the sort of um, inflationary prices and things that are going to happen. This is very typical, like post-war kind of issues, and there's going to be an outbreak of like these rice riots that are going to happen right at the end of the war. Um, in Japan. But other than that, I mean, Japan does not only really well in terms of like their diplomacy, but even like their soft power with other countries, like they're able to give loans for the first time. They hadn't been able to do that before. Um, and I mean, that's obviously a huge deal for any country when you can stop, you know, receiving aid and start giving it out, yeah. um, at least until about 1923, when the great Kanto earthquake happens. So. Okay. Well, that was a fascinating overview for me already. Is there any kind of, um, you already mentioned the, the incident with the prisoners of war. Are there any, any other particular events in 1919, 1920 that we should look out for uh, that are particularly interesting? I think if you're looking for something interesting, I would really recommend you to check out any of the uh, secret societies that existed Ooh. in Japan. So one of them is the Black Dragon Society, uh, which had these sort of uh, spies and espionage that they ran um, out in uh, Russia, China, and Korea to sort of foment dissent. Um, and I would also recommend them because, um, strangely enough, they made a number of contacts in the Middle East that led to some um, interplay for World War II. Mm -hmm. um, and they even had contact in the United States. 
as well. Um, so these, so, so after uh, World War One, there was a huge rise in political parties, um, secret societies, just these different groups like protest groups, um, because all of a sudden the country was much more liberal than it had ever been before. Um, so. I would really recommend any of those secret societies, and my favorite is probably the Black Dragon Society, and it also had another one that was related to it called the Black Ocean Society, and I just think that the names of those societies are really cool. Yeah, that sounds like directly from a movie, but um, uh, I yeah. mean, as it's often with history, um, you know, it's some, it's often even more interesting and even cooler than anything that a scriptwriter can come up with. I agree totally. Um, anyway, um, I think for the podcast portion of the of our conversation, uh, I think that was quite fascinating, and I will already say goodbye to you now. Even though I will stay on the line to chat a bit more about Japan because it is, this is something that we want to cover uh, on the show in the future, and uh, why Robbie and me were in contact in the first place. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, interview and we will hear you next time for another expert interview on the podcast. So thanks again, Robbie, for taking time of her day in the very early morning from, from her and to talk, talk to us. Um, I talked to her after the interview and we're still trying to figure out a way to make a Japan or also let's say Eastern Asia focused episode at some point, but you know, it's very hard again to get any kind of pictures um, and or even video material for such an episode. There's quite a good, uh, quite a good few books available, even in English uh, on the topic. That wouldn't be the problem, but it's um, it's a bit tough for us to say. I mean, as much as you all like to see Jesse, we can't just put him in front of a camera for 25 minutes uninterrupted. That wouldn't quite. quite um, you know, give justice to the medium of video. But maybe we'll do sad a, but true. Sad but true. Maybe we can do a, um, if it if it if we can see that it doesn't work out at all, then we can probably just do an extended uh, podcast thing and publish it for everyone. I mean, yeah, we have the same problem with the Greek uh, Greco-Turkish war, right? So yeah, everybody's screaming They're, for it and justifiably so because it's really cool and important, but. Yeah, there are several of these uh, things, and yeah, we will, we will, we we do our best here to do that. And speaking of videos, we made another very, I would almost say, controversial video mm. for some of our, our our commenters or some people on YouTube at least. But um, uh, you know, we talked about the first Red Scare of nineteen nineteen, which happened in the U.S was a bit of a more tangential topic uh, geographically uh, to what we usually talk about. But nonetheless, I think it was very interesting to investigate this and have a look at it because it was a situation that was, you know, created from the events in Europe and Russia in 1917, 1918, 1919. Yeah, it's an interesting topic because even though the revolution in Russia doesn't sort of fulfill the Bolsheviks' original dreams of spreading around the world. It fails in Germany, it fails in Hungary, it fails in Slovakia, it fails in all the other places where uh, there are kind of radical left-wing or Bolshevik uh, attempts to take power, at least at this time. Obviously in China it succeeds later, although that's a bit of a different ballgame. The ideas do spread. 
and not only a carbon copy idea of we have to do the exact same thing as what the Bolsheviks did in Russia, but Russia as an example, because not everybody in the US, or I'm also thinking of Canada, because there were some similar um, incidents and strikes and so on in Canada, the Winnipeg general strike, for example, but those ideas that we, we being the people who, not me and Flo sitting in the studio, but the, the people who uh, were attracted to these ideas, thinking, all right, well, we think the system is unjust that we have now, and Russia has provided an example. Now, they don't know necessarily everything about what went on in Russia behind the scenes, but they take that as inspiration. And that causes a lot of fear amongst the groups of people who have something, who have a stake in the, in the system in 1919. You know, uh, people who are religious or people who own companies or people who are in political power in the current system and so on. So there's always kind of a tension between those groups and the groups who are not in positions of power throughout history. Um, and now that those tensions, whether it's between black and white, whether it's between, you know, workers and these kinds of like intersections where there are tensions always throughout history, become flavored and to some extent defined by some through this like Bolshevik Red Scare lens. And that's what I kind of thought was, uh, was one of the interesting aspects of, of, uh, of putting together that episode. Yeah, I think uh, something that was more implicit in this situation is something that we also see in 1919 all over the world. Uh, we see it in Versailles, we see it at the Paris Peace Conference, uh, we see it in Germany, we see it uh, here in the US, I think, as well, or North America, and in other countries as well, is the expectation that the horrors of the war must have meant something, and what that, what it have meant and what the reward, in quotation marks, is for the sacrifices that were made, is of course up to interpretation. For the for the, all these groups you outlined, but it's you know it the the fact that the uh, the unions and the workers um, agreed to hold uh, strikes and everything for the wartime, for example, and most of to the hold off on the strikes, yeah, yeah to yeah. not strike, to yeah. not strike, um, and probably not even negotiate salaries or that, these kind of formal kind of things, um, and you know, I'm also pretty sure that they didn't just you know, worked their normal hours, uh, which also wasn't eight-hour days back then, but even they probably did a lot of hard, very hard work to keep the, you know, to produce guns and military hardware, food, all these kind of items that were important to continue the war. So they, even they were, even if they weren't fighting, they made a sacrifice in their eyes as well. Well, normal factories in the early 20th centuries are not, a 20th century, are not necessarily safe places, but a munitions factory is definitely worse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were several explosions. Um, so there, I think there is a feeling of from you know the labor battalion guy to the frontline soldier to the general to the politician to the worker to the woman who was a nurse to everybody that said, okay, we have lived, we lived through four and a half years of bloodshed, unimaginable bloodshed at that time. So a, what do we do to you know, prevent this from happening ever again. 
which is, you know, even though it didn't work out that way, but is that something that the Paris Peace Conference set out to do? And what can the people above me offer me for that sacrifice in return? And I think that's something that, um, and, and I think in that context, it makes it more understandable why, for example, some of the union members and some of the rank and file of the workers and everything said, hey, you know, we've seen what happens in Russia and this is maybe, like, if you guys don't listen to us and we can't get our wage increase or the eight-hour workday was, I think, something that was uh, starting to get popular around that time, if you don't listen to us, we've seen what's pos possible in Russia and you should be afraid of that because, you know, we know you are. And, and they I, definitely were. And, and they definitely were. So, and I think from that perspective, it makes a bit more sense to... Um, observe what the unions and so forth were going for. Of course, there were also revolution, actual revolutionary elements in the unions. Uh, yeah, we talked about that, yeah. Uh, and everything, but I think it's, um, you know, I think from that perspective, it, it's also interesting to look at the Red Scare. It's, it's tough, and obviously this is part of the, uh, I think part of the response to the episode. It's quite tough with this topic to look at the range of, let's say, the, the ideological spectrum, right? Because the terms, you know, Bolshevik and red and socialist are kind of hot button terms, but they also, well, Bolshevik's pretty clear, but let's say red or socialist, they can have quite different shades uh, of meaning depending on who's defining themselves that way or calling their organization that way. And then who is looking from the outside and criticizing or condemning or being afraid or what have you. So that's, uh, that's I think, one of the trickiest elements to this theme is how to look at it and say, well, all right, who is really thinking, yeah, we want a violent social revolution? Who's thinking we're going to refer to the Russian violent social revolution in order to achieve something more modest here and then who is really sort of middle of the road wanting to have a uh, better quality of life for workers but more or less maintain the same system and so on and that's not easy and that's definitely not easy to pack into a 20-minute episode yeah. covering all the stuff that we are trying to cover so it's definitely not exhaustive that's what i think makes this a little bit harder to navigate in general as a, as a historical topic for the show and especially for one episode. Yeah, which is also why we will, we will revisit this topic because the Red Scare wasn't over at that point. I'm uh, already looking forward to the comments. Yeah, me too. Um, speaking also about comments, I'm, I'm making so very, so very many great segues. In this you podcast. are on a roll, man. I'm impressed. Yeah. Speaking about comments, uh, we haven't forgotten about your uh, Patreon questions, of course. Uh, we got a few very interesting questions particularly one uh, which I found interesting about that we should cover the rise of Italian fascism 100 years ago, which we will, is definitely on the menu for us. Um, and we will also do some additional research to cover some of these questions that you have, to, have asked us, in a, and we will cover them in a future podcast episode. With the Berlin project and the pre-production, we just haven't had the time this summer to do it yet, but we haven't forgotten about you. And if you have any more questions about anything we just talked about, about the Berlin Project, about the Great War in general, just post it anywhere. We, yeah, Anywhere on the internet, we will find the question. So uh, see you next month.
All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. And I'll see you in the next episode. And I will see you in April at the Battle of Berlin.